You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, this week you wanted to talk about graphs and networks. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, last episode we talked about uh, the idea of collaborative filtering, where you have, say, something like, you know, Netflix users and Netflix movies, and you'd like to predict whether or not, you know, someone's going to like a movie based on their other tastes and the tastes of other people and the properties of movies and so on. And we talked a little bit about a particular model for that that's very successful. Another kind of interesting problem out there that turns out to have a lot of sort of structural similarities is the idea of uh, modeling things like social networks. This is the kind of thing where you're on Twitter or on Facebook and you follow some people and some people follow you and you get a suggestion about whether or not, you know, uh, about some new person and whether or not you might be interested in them Mm -hmm. and whether or not you might want to follow them or friend them and so on. And you might wonder how how those suggestions, you know, come into being. That's the kind of problem we think about when we're doing network modeling. Hmm. Uh, so this has a lot of different names, but basically what it boils down to is a lot of the interesting data out in the world corresponds to graphs. And here I don't mean graphs like you know like charts. I mean graphs like um, like graph theory. And just to kind of remind you, the the idea with a um, you know with a graph is that we have vertices or nodes in the graph, and then we have edges. So those are the kind of the lines connecting the vertices. And when we do probabilistic modeling of graphs or when we try to understand structure that, about social networks or about biochemical pathways or lots of different things, then what we're hoping is that the relationships that we see as a result of, these, of seeing these edges tells us about maybe edges we can't see or different interesting properties. So there are different questions that we might want to ask about a graph. So we might want to do things like we talked about a second ago, like we might want to predict who you should be friends with that Mm -hmm. you aren't currently friends with, or we might want to use it to understand different communities that exist or what your tastes are, or maybe even make inferences about things like what high school you went to or something like that. Um, So there are lots of different kinds of interesting scientific and social questions we might ask from graphs. And the idea of kind of network modeling and, and graph modeling is to try to come up with methods for making these discoveries. One of the really interesting ways to do this kind of modeling, and the reason I started out talking about collaborative filtering, is because it's really natural to view a graph through its adjacency matrix. So this is a matrix that, say, is like Facebook users by Facebook users, and it's almost entirely zeros. And then the places where there are ones, that indicates that those two people are friends. Mm-hmm. And in the case, you know, in something like Twitter, then this might be a directed network because I can follow you, but maybe you don't follow me. And so then we would have a one in one part of the graph, but in the sort of transpose, we wouldn't have that, that edge. So what we can do is take a graph and we can, or a network, and we can turn that into a big matrix. And then we can do different things to try to model that matrix. And now the question of determining whether or not you know you should be friends with someone is trying to say whether or not that entry should be one or zero. And what we hope is that we can do different things to identify this kind of structure. So last time I mentioned that collaborative one approach to collaborative filtering is something kind of called probabilistic matrix factorization or singular value decomposition, where what we're doing is saying that the the matrix can be written as the product of two smaller matrices. We can do, it turns out, the same kind of thing with network modeling as well. And this allows us to say that the probability of two people, say, being connected is a function of these, you know, these, say, shared tastes. So there's some properties of you, um, you know, maybe maybe it's something like what music, you know, you listen to or something like that. But more realistically, it's a, a function of like where you live, maybe what kind of, you know, what kind of social groups you interact with. Uh, and so on that determine then whether or not you're going to be friends with someone. 
And, uh, and these are sort of very powerful models for building networks. But in network modeling, there's also a lot of other cool ideas out there. So there's um, also the idea of, for example, stochastic block models. These are kind of interesting. They imagine that every single person that uh, is out there belongs to some group and that there are relationships between the groups. So you tend to maybe be more densely connected to people that are in your group, and then you have some smaller probability of connecting to someone in, in different groups. And and the idea being that, you know, you tend to be friends maybe with people that you went to elementary school with. But if I just see the network, I don't know what elementary school you went to. Um, and so, But that may be something that we, can in, that we can infer from the data. And this also corresponds to other kinds of things, like you could imagine trying to discover the network of neurons in the brain, and we might expect there are neurons of different types and in different regions, and then given the connections that we can see, maybe we can infer what types there are, you know, or what region of the brain these, these neurons came from. And then also things like biochemical pathways, you know, can we discover interesting like functional groups based on, um, you know, things that are regulating each other in a somewhat dense way relative to something that's going on in some different tissue or some different, re- you know, different sort of signaling pathway. So these are kind of two different interesting views. One of them is, is a kind of general notion of you have some continuous set of properties, and the other is that you have some latent identity. And then there are interesting twists on these as well. For example, a latent distance model where every, say, person in the Facebook network is embedded in some virtual location, and then you tend to be connected to people that you're close to in that space. Then other ideas like mixed membership stochastic block models where you don't just belong to one group, but you belong to a collection of groups, and then maybe how you are connected or whether or not you're connected is a function of all of these things. So instead of just what elementary school you went to, it's what elementary school and what junior high and what club you were in and, you know, are you an archer or like all of these different possible weird things that, that might variously contribute to your, you know, your social group. So there's this really cool sort of interesting world of, of models for thinking about networks. And then there's a lot of really wonderful theories surrounding this that's been um, being developed by uh, my friend Peter Orbans and, um, and other colleagues. It's a very exciting area. And also to think about what happens when these graphs become very, very, very large. Like it's one thing to reason about a graph that is, uh, you know, that has 100 people in it. But real graphs, have, you know, have billions of people or like lots and lots of different things. And it turns out that the properties of these networks um, might change as they get larger. And we'd like to make sure that they're somehow consistent. And so this gives rise to this, this interesting theoretical area called graph limits. Um, and, uh, and it turns out there's a lot of really cool science going on and mathematics going on in, in, this, in this space. But I think it's, it's kind of deeply connected with lots of other, lots of other areas of, of machine learning and probability. The extensions to biology are just fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's kind of one of the most important applications of these, these ideas. So you can go on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. We'll have a couple of papers up there where you can read more about the topic. So Ryan, this week our listener question is about choosing the correct algorithm for a problem. Hi Ryan and Catherine. My name is Josh and I'm with the startup that is applying machine learning to a specific area of healthcare. First off, I'm so happy that Talking Machines exists, and I think you guys have done an incredible job with it. My question pertains to algorithm selection. It's often true that any number of machine learning algorithms could be used for a single practical application, since we haven't found, and may never find, a silver bullet. For instance, one may find varying degrees of success using a logistic regression versus an SVM or random forest to perform a specific classification task. It's also 
pretty likely that neither researchers nor industrial practitioners of ML have time to test every algorithm or combination thereof on their data set, especially as these data sets become larger and larger. Thus, my question is, how would an expert practitioner go about predicting which algorithm or combination of algorithms to use? Is there even an exact science to this process? Looking forward to hearing back from you guys, Josh. You know, this is a really good question. It comes up all the time uh, when I talk to people who want to use machine learning. And, and frankly, it comes up in the classes I teach. For example, in my undergraduate course, we have these very open-ended homework assignments that I call practicals. And they involve uh, a data set and some kind of empirical measure of performance. Often I run these on Kaggle. And the students ask the same kind of question, like, how do I go about solving this? And that's exactly part of the part of the pedagogical goal, from my point of view, is forcing the students to uh, to try to, to confront exactly this question. Like, what do I do now that I have some data and a, and a formalism for what it means to do well? So the answer is you start simple and you first try to get a sense of how hard the problem actually is. Starting simple on a supervised classification type problem means applying something quite off the shelf. Maybe it's logistic regression or maybe it's a, a support vector machine or something, uh, you know, or something pretty simple. What it means to be simple will depend on the scale of your problem and what the inputs look like and what the outputs look like and, and a variety of, uh, of other things, but probably you have an idea of what a simple machine learning model is. And often this may mean something relatively off the shelf, you know, using somebody else's library and just applying it and seeing what happens. Plug and play. Yeah, exactly. And, and what this does is it calibrates the problem because some things are easy. And if the problem is going to be easy, then everything's going to work basically. And so you want to rapidly discover whether or not the problem is hard and whether it actually demands creativity in, in the problem. And then once you discover that a problem is hard, then there are a lot of choices that you need to make in order to do better on it. And exactly what you do next is going to depend on the nature of the hardness. So, so one kind of hardness is that the problem is highly nonlinear. You apply a logistic regression and it turns out that a simple sort of linear decision boundary isn't going to do the trick. And so then maybe you need to get better features. So a lot of machine learning in practice is just feature engineering. And that super duper fancy nonlinear classifier uh, maybe gives you some mileage, but most of the time, or quite often, doing some good feature engineering with a simple linear classifier will give you, will give you a lot of mileage. Deep learning has been about trying to combine the question of finding a good classifier and trying to find good features. And so these days, there are quite a few nice libraries out there for applying deep learning type, type techniques. And then you can hopefully, with a relatively small amount of tuning, get going. And then there are, of course, as you mentioned, other techniques like random forests, which often work well out of the box. And it's true that it seems overwhelming that there's all these different things you can do. I think what an expert kind of does is has a, uh, you know, a mental model of an ordering of these things and their relevance to a particular problem where they start out really simple and they become more and more complicated. And what you try to do is only go to a more complicated technique if you really are bouncing off of some wall. You know, there's other kinds of difficulties, you know. So, for example, in statistical genetics, one of the big challenges is that you don't have many examples, but you have very high dimensionality, and you expect that most of the single nucleotide polymorphisms don't matter. So you do interesting sparse regression models. So it's a pretty simple model, but now all of your engineering is maybe going into trying to set up uh, some way that you can you know, shrink most of the regression weights to zero. So that by that, I just mean that trying to figure out what small numbers of genetic variations actually matter for some disease or some phenotype you care about 
And that's a simple linear model, but with fanciness on what we call the feature selection side. And that's different than image classification, where uh, you, you continue to look at all the pixels, but now you're you know, using a deep convolutional neural network or something like that to discover fancy properties of, of these, uh, these images. So the, uh, the point is that there's no single answer to this. Over time, you get a little bit better idea of what uh, makes a problem hard when it's hard. But the key thing is always start with the simplest possible thing so that you can establish what parts of it are actually difficult. And like I said, sometimes problems are easy and don't waste a lot of time doing big fancy techniques if something off the shelf will, will solve it perfectly well. Thanks so much for your question. And if you have a question for us here at Talking Machines, you can ask us on Twitter, T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S, or over email, thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. So this week, our guest on Talking Machines is George Dahl, and he's a PhD student. He actually recently defended his thesis at the University of Toronto, um, and he's he's really fantastic. He You probably know his work from the, the Merck contest. Yeah, I mean, you know, George, for being somebody who's just finished his PhD, is actually, in addition to, to uh, tackling this Merck thing, he also was one of the original people to make progress on, on uh, doing speech recognition with deep neural networks. Yeah. When we first sat down with George, uh, we asked him the same question that we ask everybody to start off with. How did you get to where you are? I guess uh, I went to a small uh, private liberal arts school that John Hopfield went to. And uh, in uh, my sophomore year, I started getting really interested in machine learning. And I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And I actually read a couple neural nets papers and it was 2006 and there were some very influential papers coming out of Jeff's group and I tried to find a list of places I would go to grad school and because I that that was the path forward if I wanted to do this for the rest of my life and so I looked for the people doing the research I wanted to do that had the most successful students that were also at places where there was more than one person I would be excited to work with in case they hated me uh, or some other tragedy. And so that led me to Toronto and luckily Jeff was willing to take me on as a student and I guess the, the rest is history. So <laughs> <laughs> We actually, we talked to Jeff um, and, and he was articulating to us some of the, some of the interesting milestones in, in, in what's caused uh, you know, deep learning to take over the world, if you will. And one of the things he said was uh, he talked about a sort of 2010 paper on on uh, deep learning for for speech recognition and and uh, mm -hmm. trying to get that all right with sort of uh, buy-in from the speech community. And uh, and of course that was your that was your work. Yeah, Abdurrahman and I uh, at Toronto were using deep neural nets for phone recognition, which is sort of proto-speech recognition, on Timit, which is the sort of MNIST of the speech recognition world. You mean a very, it's a very common benchmark that people Well, it's use. a common benchmark, but it's sort of small and not, um, it doesn't require a full production pipeline. Um, for instance, you could imagine doing OCR and have a huge pipeline, and then you have sort of isolated images of digits in MNIST. And so it's sort of analogously Timit. Uh, is a small vocabulary task. It's got three hours of audio data, um, and it has 
actually manually sort of segmented phone boundaries. And so Abdurrahman and I were working on, on speech and there was going to be a workshop on, on deep learning for speech at, at uh, uh, NIPS 2009, I guess. And we sent this to the workshop and we, when we got to the workshop, it seemed like the entire workshop was now about this particular submission. <laughs> the, all the speakers were either commenting on it or saying it, it was going to work or it wasn't going to work on when we used larger data sets. That's sort of how it began. And so most of the speech community ignored it at that point. Um, there were a few people at Microsoft, uh, like Lee Deng, who were really excited because he ran so much on Timit. Right? Most speech features never operate on Timit. But Lee Dang was very familiar with what Timit results meant and had done a lot of work on that data set himself, so had a lot more respect for results on it than other speech researchers. And so he invited Abdurrahman and I to go to Microsoft. And during my internship at Microsoft, we had the first really exciting results for this, sort, this approach on a large vocabulary task. Of course, not the biggest of large vocabulary tasks, but it was still a real speech task. It was a Bing voice search task. We got a, a pretty large improvement. So this, the speech community is generally reports relative error reductions um, because they've been refining the same basic approach for many years, uh, to put it diplomatically. And they sometimes it's very hard to get much of an improvement without doing something drastic. But then doing something drastic means you have to throw away this highly refined system. And then you're sort of back at square one, and then you don't get a good result. And so because of those incentives, and because a lot of people in the speech community are in industry and are not doing as much open-ended, longer-term research, they sort of were stuck with these Gaussian mixture model HMM systems. And so the traditional speech recognition uses Gaussian mixture models, HMMs, n-gram language models, and a beam search decoder. And the three biggest things wrong with that approach are the GMMs, the HMMs, and the n-gram language models. <laughs> uh, but the, the easiest, the decoder is actually a good part, but uh, the easiest thing to replace are the GMMs, because you can keep the HMM structure, which means the decoding process sorry, is almost sorry, the same. The, uh, so an HMM is a hidden Markov model. That's right, sorry. And a GMM um, is, a, is a Gaussian mixture model? That's right. Um, and so speech, the speech recognition literature is sort of alphabet soup. They have FMLLR, uh, BMMI, uh, all sorts of acronyms, uh, probably because of IBM's initial dominance in the area. And IBM is an acronym positive place. Uh, <laughs> initialisms initialisms excuse me yeah I, I think what you're getting at is the idea that maybe speech recognition has been in a kind of a scientific local minimum maybe for a while that's right that's how I would describe it and in order to do something new you have to challenge things right you have to challenge the way things are being done and that's the nice thing about machine learning researchers we have the confidence or hubris to think that other fields are doing things incorrectly, <laughs> and then sometimes we try to fix it, sort of like physicists do. Yeah. Physicists do that to us, but 
uh, as well. This is yeah, that's the history of physicists. I think I think we've taken the crown for this kind of thing. These yeah, days. we're the yeah. we're the physicists of computer science. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, a lot of machine learning researchers were physicists, right? People like Chris Bishop and you know a lot of other people had a physics background since com academic computer science is so young. I have a PhD in physics. That's right. You do. You I'm are a physicist. Inexplicably. Inexplicably. Yeah, I'm a fake. David Mackay yeah. and yeah, and. A lot of techniques that we use come from physics, like a lot of the MCMC stuff we do. That's right. Markov chain Monte Carlo. That's right. So, so you, uh, so you stepped in and and did this internship. And my colleagues, of course, and and your colleagues, yeah. uh, of course, oh. and at uh, and then you you spent a summer at Microsoft Research, and you know, unlike a typical internship, which might just sort of be three months of faffing about. Uh, you you basically change the game of speech recognition. That's right. I. I, I tried to get down to business as, as quickly as possible. So we agreed on the project before I arrived. We started planning it out before I got there so I could really start immediately. And Abdurrahman's internship worked out all the kinks in the computing infrastructure because he did an internship right before me. And so, and he also did more experiments on Timit, but it was a long process to get going on the data set with the decoder and all the other pieces. And people like Dong Yu were obviously essential for that work uh, to even fix a bug in the decoder, right? So the decoder had a hard-coded limit on how many features you could use per frame. And that limit um, was uh, 1,250, which is actually, I think, of four-byte values. And so we could it always crashed whenever I tried to use more than 1,250 neural net features uh, per frame and I could not figure out why and he dug through all the code and he, and we searched for numbers like 1250 but then we're like oh it's got to be times four and then we found a hard-coded 5000 somewhere <laughs> and and he fixed it some constant yeah in some piece of code yeah exactly that had existed for years and years and years and and things like that that you need sort of people familiar with these decoders and familiar with the speech research pipeline to really get working and so the the basic recipe we used trained a, a, a big deep neural net, deep and wide uh, neural net to replace the Gaussian mixture model to essentially learn to associate the acoustics with the elementary speech sounds or phones. Um, in this case, there are states in this HMM model, this hidden Markov model. And so the rest of it was sort of unchanged and and this approach of using a neural net in place of the Gaussian mixture model had been developed in the 90s by people like uh, Boulard and, and Nelson Morgan and, and lots of other people. But we really tried to make the net much deeper and, and still very wide and were able to get very good results. And at this point, pre-training was still something. That's right. Pre-training was helpful in our results. Um, and pre-training still is helpful on some speech tasks, but on the very largest ones, you can do other things, what is sometimes known as supervised pre-training, where you just initialize the nets with shallower ones, um, or you can just use thousands of hours of data, but we were using 24 hours of data, which is still not that much. And, and you used something like a Gaussian restricted Boltzmann machine? That's right, the first layer was a Gaussian Bernoulli uh, restricted Boltzmann machine, and that is well known as 
a somewhat unsatisfactory model. And uh, it's one of the hardest ones to train, too. Well, it's it's very trainable. It's it's not as hard as something like the MCRBM, which is really a monster. Um, but that is something I've tried to train, and sometimes I've succeeded, and sometimes I've failed. I have a NIPS paper with I think Mark Aurelio and Jeff and Abdurrahman on using that on Timit, but it's I don't use that model anymore. Let's just put it that way. Um. <laughs> so you uh, so you spent the summer there at Microsoft, and and you guys got the best result ever on Timit by a substantial margin. Is that right? Yeah, that was before we actually got to Microsoft. Oh, even before. Okay. Yeah. So then, what did you achieve at, at Microsoft? That was the large vocabulary experiments. Um, so in, at Toronto, we got we broke the record on Timit. Of course, it's since been broken by many neural net based models, and even traditional speech models have improved where they were on Timit. But at Microsoft, that was the large vocabulary success, the first large vocabulary success of this approach. And so the speech community doesn't care about anything that's not large vocabulary. They don't care about Timit ultimately. There are a few people that pay attention to Timit, like Li Deng, but by and large, if something works on Timit, if it's their thing, they might care, but if it's someone else's thing, they don't care. Um, and it, it basically, you needed to get all the speech researchers to see a large vocabulary result and then really believe it. And it had to be big enough that they had to pay attention. It had to be a big enough improvement and so that, that convinced a lot of people at Microsoft, and it convinced a lot of other groups to try it themselves. And once you try it yourself, it of course, then you have your own results, and then you can really believe it. Like The best way to convince yourself that some other research is useful is to replicate it. And so people, so my office mate, Navdeep Jaitley, went to Google and used a very similar recipe to what I used at Microsoft at Google. And he, you know that that has, eventually made it into Android voice search and a lot of Google products. Uh, Tara Sainath and other people at IBM, along with some help from Abdurrahman, put it into the IBM recognizer, which is very well regarded in the speech community as one of the strongest ones. And they had one of the smallest improvements because it was such a strong baseline. And uh, now it's in open source software like Kaldi and uh, other other speech, basically all the speech groups that want a state-of-the-art recognition pipeline are using these models now, as far as I know. Well, that's that's amazing. I mean, it's had a tremendous impact. Does anybody, you know, if you if you look at one of the big speech conferences now, are, are people still publishing results on on Gaussian mixture models, or or is well, that so now totally out of vogue? The way speech recognition works is you only add to the pipeline. It's almost impossible to delete steps. So actually, the first step is to train a Gaussian mixture model system to create the training data for the neural net. Uh, so, and, 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 and a lot of speech conferences work on things like dialogue systems or sort of not what they call LBCSR, Large Vocabulary Continuous Speech Recognition, alphabet soup. Um, but the, the people working on the core recognition technology, uh, I think they all are using neural nets now. Um, and, it, and unfortunately, to, to really get rid of the GMMs, you need to use more neural nets than just the ones I used. You need to replace the HMM as well to really get rid of everything from the traditional system. And if you're ever you're doing flat start training, you need aligned training data, ideally. So it's sort of like making sourdough. Uh, 
to the first step of training Attila, the IBM recognition pipeline, is to use this tiny little model to align the initial training data for the first simplest model. And to actually train from a flat start with nothing, you take your sourdough starter, uh, which could have been trained on hand-segmented phones or something, uh, and a really small amount of them. You take your, your sourdough starter and then you iterate maybe 20 or more different models that you train from scratch using training data aligned by the previous generation of models. And that's why these pipelines get so long and so difficult for non-experts to work with. I think the, the speech conferences are all using this stuff now. Most of the papers are, if they're doing something that's really into the core recognition research, they're using a, a neural net system. Um, some of them are using neural net language models as well. Um, that's sort of a parallel development. And the, the next step, I think, is they'll all start using recurrent neural nets in place of the hidden Markov model. Uh, people like Alex Graves have been doing stuff like that, and that will eventually spread to everyone. Um, you know, you might have to make new decoders then to work with that, which is annoying. So that's why that's going to be the last thing. But as far as I, you know, when I look at the proceedings of, there, there's sort of a particular year, you know, where where ICASP, one of the major speech conferences, had basically no papers using neural nets except for a couple here and there using tan what are called tandem systems. I don't really want to explain what that is, but um, they, there was a, you know, people who were using very few neural nets and certainly very few deep neural nets. Uh, and nowadays, I believe they, they're almost all using them. Since if you're an academic researcher, you want to, most academic researchers partner with an industry speech group to use their recognizer, right? So some partner with IBM. So if IBM's recognizer uses it, they all start with that. Some pat, uh, partner with SRI or Nuance or, or, or some other company, and some use an open source toolkit like Kaldi. And so since all those sort of base systems are using this, anyone who's trying to improve upon them starts with a recipe from one of these things, starts with the software from one of these things, and, and goes from there to do whatever novel improvement they want to investigate. Now, now, after sort of blowing up the speech community with, this, uh, with these results, you then actually moved on to something totally different and almost did the same thing again. So you, now as I recall, you then went and entered a competition that was run by, by Merck to predict the the properties of, of new drug molecules. Is that right? Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I like to do lots of different things. I don't like to be stuck in one application as interesting or rich as it might be. Um, so initially I went to speech because no one was doing speech in Jeff's group. Uh, people were doing vision and a little bit of other stuff. So I thought, well, it's time someone did speech. and. Then once I sort of said my piece about speech and it had sort of other people had started doing similar things, I thought, well, maybe now it's time to try some other stuff. And so there was this contest. And I'm always looking for great data sets. That's always what I'm searching for. And so this looked like an unusually good data set and unusually interesting, and it seemed like a difficult problem. And moreover, it was a smallish data set where maybe these recipes from training deep neural nets from speech with lots and lots of labeled data are not going to work there. Maybe 
a model with 100 million tunable parameters is not what you want when you only have a few thousand training cases. So maybe we, you know, it was time to, to sort of test the limits of our methods in the other direction. How small can we go? How scarce can the data be? And we can still use powerful models. Certainly, if you're Bayesian, you can, you know, always integrate things out. But maybe with Dropout and, and other new ideas from Jeff's lab, it would be possible to work on this sort of a data set. And so um, I started working on the contest by myself on the train um, just to pass the time on a long train ride. And I was sort of playing around with it, but I wasn't really working on it seriously because I didn't, it wasn't sort of my project. It was like my side project. And Jeff, to his credit, um, says all of his students should have a side project that he doesn't completely approve of. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, of course, he sort of endorses the idea of that him not approving of it. But, <laughs> but so the idea is that we should all have a side project that he doesn't really think is a, a good use of time. Um, and so we were talking in a meeting, and he was talking about how, well, okay, we're doing great on vision. We're doing great on, on speech. There's some inroads in NLP. But natural language processing. Natural language processing. But bioinformatics is a wasteland. Um, where, where is deep learning in bioinformatics? And I said, well, as it so happens, I'm in sixth place on this contest. It, it may or may not be bioinformatics. It's you know, computational chemistry. But it's, for people that don't work in the area and machine learning with the machine learning hubris, it's close enough. Um, and so he said, oh, well, in that case, you have to win it. So, so why, when's the competition over? And I said, well, in about two weeks. He said, well, you need to, you need to be first now. <laughs> and so I had my orders. <laughs> and Does this often happen with projects that Jeff like, doesn't approve of, and then he suddenly approves of them, and then of you course, have to win once, it? Of course. I mean, if the students can get an interesting result, it becomes interesting. Right. Yeah. Right? Um, it's like Ricky Bobby. If you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, it, it, I th once I mentioned I was in sixth place and I hadn't really done much work on it, he said, well, let's get some more people on the team. You've got two weeks. Why don't you just spend two weeks on this? And it's a nice limited amount of time. So there's only, you can waste at most two weeks. Um, <laughs> so you should, you should win it now. Since you're, you're at sixth place, let, let's do it. And so Russ Salahudinov got involved. Um, we went from there. And so there were a few other pe people on the, on the, on the team um, after at that point. And so... At that point, I, I switched to working on that full time for just those two weeks, instead of as a side thing that I did on the train or when I was busy, tired of doing other things, just to flex my programming aching muscles or whatever. And we tried to win, and we were able to get first place in the contest. Um, there were some teams that were that were close, but there were no surprises once the private test data results were revealed. Um, the, the top teams were the top teams, and, it, and we were first in both. There was a baseline that Merck provided, uh, and our winning submission had a relative improvement of about 15% over this. And Merck had spent some time trying to make a, a strong baseline, um, but they wanted to, to see what the public could do. And in... The, the, the problem is called QSAR, or Quantitative Structive Structural Activity Relationship Prediction. And in QSAR, 
neural nets have been used, in particular Bayesian neural nets have been used, because there's often very little data. This data set actually is larger than some academic data sets that have been used. And high throughput screening technology has been advancing and more and more data is getting created. And there are these large chemical libraries. Basically the task is to take these small molecules or drug-like molecules, which I like to think of as candidate drug ingredients, and see whether they will interact with or bind with a biological molecule, a big molecule, like a protein or, or something else. And the reason you'd want to do this is because if, for instance, you have something that binds with hemoglobin, if it's in your bloodstream, it could be a huge problem. Uh, and so you really need to make drugs that are not toxic. And it all depends on the concentration. I mean, chemotherapy came out of mustard gas attacks. People noticed that people who had survived a mustard gas attack had less cancer. And so essentially what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And everything's toxic at a high enough concentration. So you want to predict at what concentration or, or, or whether this will be strongly interacting with this biological molecule. How long will it stay in the blood? How fast will it get absorbed by the liver? Will it bind to anything in the blood? Will it? The, all these questions are very important for any new drug ingredient. And furthermore, if there's a particular protein that you think is relevant to a disease pathway or some other pathology, does it interact with that? And so that's the basic problem. And we used large, deep, wide neural nets to get a substantial noticeable improvement over what Merck does. And uh, Merck you know, is using my code and has been able to remove all the other parts of the ensemble we made that weren't the neural nets and still actually improve the performance a little beyond what the competition submission had on the same data. And so as far as I know, they're going to use it in their production QSAR drug discovery pipeline. Wow, that's, that's really, really... But it, cool. it hasn't taken off in the rest of the pharmaceutical community, but uh, I think it, there need to be some more papers first and there needs to be some more evaluation and more research before... I think it's reasonable before they all jump on board. George Dahl of the University of Toronto. Congratulations again, George, on your successful defense. Yes, definitely. Tune in to us next time. That's it for us on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. <laughs>